Hey guys, I hope you're all enjoying this podcast. I know I'm really enjoying doing it. It's my favorite thing to connect with people and go deep and see where our journeys overlap and how we can inspire each other through connection. And if you've ever thought about doing a podcast, I invite you to try it. It's really easy. And the platform that I'm using to create this podcast, Anchor, makes it really simple. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. Best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast, which means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. So if you've ever thought about it and you have an iPhone or a desktop that you can record podcasts at, Try it right away. It's really simple and fun, and it's a great way to connect and build community. Now back to the podcast. This is the Souls of San Francisco podcast by Souls of Society. I'm Dijon, founder of Souls of Society. Each week, we connect with a member of our community to hear their story and get to know them better so we can strengthen our community bond. Today... I am sitting here with Yogi Plachiado. We are of the same tribe, and I believe we originally met at Om Shanti, back when it was still Om Shanti in the mission. And we ran into each other recently at Symbiosis, and it was just like, hey, hey, long time no see. And it felt like we had a lot to catch up on, and he started telling me about his current situation, and he is now a teacher in Vienna, and what he was teaching sounded very interesting. I'll let him tell you about it. You want to introduce yourself and say hello? Sure. Um, my name is Yogi Graciello, as Dijon said, and um, I am an environmental philosopher. A lot of people ask me what that means, and uh, it means whatever you want it to mean, because any profession you know, has so many valences, whatever you bring to it, you know, where's your spirit? So my current project is uh, I'm a postdoc uh, for a research um, program called New Directions in Plant Ethics. So I'm really focused on um, what are these things that we see more of than any other type of nature, plants, and how do they interact with us, how they, they interact with animals, fungi, bacteria, how do they interact with each other, and how could we interact with them in a way that um, affords them more respect so that we can all live, all beings, in a really yummy way and enjoy the opportunity for this blue-green marble of a planet um, as heaven on earth. Very eloquent. I like that. I definitely feel like my appreciation for plants is increasing. I started eating vegan maybe like five weeks ago. And I've tried it before and done different stints of being vegetarian. And whenever I do, my like plant awareness and consciousness goes up because I'm only consuming plants. And it's, it's similar to the type of feeling I have when I'm on mushrooms. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're just like, oh, that tree is talking to me now. I just feel more awareness, like the, the trees and plants are alive and they have spirits. And um, <laughs> There's even a friend who's a vegan on Facebook and she always makes like vegan posts. And she was like, if you like meat so much, like why are you trying to make it taste like plants? And it had a picture of like all of like the herb and like spice wrap that yeah. were all plants. And it's like, I think plants play a bigger role in our lives than we can even really imagine. And maybe that's what you're trying to make people more aware of. Yeah, and um, I'm not trying to make anything. I'm trying to seduce people with the power of plants because plants are their best ambassadors, you know, themselves. Um, there's a line in one of my favorite Icaros, uh, a song from the Amazon, and it says, the pain that we feel as humans, is the pain of the plants. I've really been meditating on that since hearing it recently in uh, a 
in a beautiful ceremonial setting again. I actually think I have that line also in my dissertation. I quote that Ikaro. And Adogo uh, vegetais. You know, what if the pain in our bodies, what if the pain in our soul and our spirit is deeply connected to the pain that we're inflicting on plant life, on this planet? And what if it's, in a sense, just a mirror? And what if the only way to battle these ever-mounting epidemics of cancer and AIDS and, you know, autism and, uh, you know, all these disabilities that are really taking a lot of energy and time and resources and life and spirit out of our societies, out of our cultures? What if this could be cured by curing our relationship with plant life. Because, yes, I'm an academic, and on a uh, biochemical level, plants have certain signals that we know about. I would go so far as to say that I'm sure that they have many signaling processes, disease that we don't know. Um, and from a purely scientific point of view, there's a lot of studies coming out about the healing effects of walking in a forest. Both for your nervous system, for heart rate, for cholesterol, for all these things. It brings the body back in balance. There's recent research coming out of Stanford where they had people walking a beautiful part of Stanford for 90 minutes on, in a forest versus walking on a street in Palo Alto, which is still not too bad because of our cities go. And it showed that on a whole range of um, biometrics that walking in the forest had considerable statistically significant effects on well-being. And so it's to these branches of medicine that I think in my lifetime, inshallah, with all of our work and support, will connect back up with these old traditions from all around the world it will really show us um, that we are not separate from the other beings that we share this time on the planet with. And that our health and their health is intimately intertwined. Mm. I feel like that definitely makes sense to me and I resonate with what you're saying. But I've also been living in San Francisco for nine years, so maybe my ecological awareness is more primed for that type of message than your average like mainstream American. Do you have maybe three ways, like in a non-abstract way of thinking, that the average person can become more aware of their relationship with plants or kind of how important plants are? Sure. I would say to begin with, um, if you go back to the founding of this country, the U.S., there's a huge discussion about the vicious moral effects of moving to cities because being on the land instilled you with a certain sort of moral sensibility. That attachment, in German they call it Heimat, homeland, but it's like, I am of the earth. I'm autochthonous. I come out of the earth. And Aldo Leopold, a famous environmentalist, um, wrote in his Sand County Almanac about learning to read the land, like the language of the land. And if you're a farmer, even to this day, your life in a big way depends on being able to successfully read the land and, in a certain sense, to commune with it. So, I do think that a lot of people in this country and around the world who don't live in cities automatically have a different sensibility than you or I who have spent the majority of our life in, you know, however hip, urban centers. So, one, um, I would say, um, getting your feet on the earth every day, barefoot, I mean, it's such a simple thing, or in water, but putting, you know, or lying on the earth, 
they even have a term for it now, earthing. It's like a thing. If you Google it on the internet, mm-hmm. earthing. I'm not talking about technology or plugging in some blanket to the electrical socket, like some of the new age business, you know, foo-foo is trying to sell. I'm talking about body on soil. You know, if it's a forest floor or a beach or in the water or wherever your local ecology is, just taking a moment to connect and breathe and meditate and forgive yourself for anything that you're not forgiving yourself for, having gratitude for anything that you need to have gratitude for and feel that connection to the land. So that'd be one thing. Another one would be ascetic practices, whether that's learning some sort of yoga or you know, swimming where you're holding your breath and getting more in touch with your own body so that when you are around plants and in natural places that you're able to have your senses crisp, a little bit more sharpened, a little bit fresh, so you can actually take that in. Because a lot of our diets, I would say, are um, dulling. They're dulling to our senses. And so we become less attuned to the magic that's in a dewdrop on a leaf or the magic of the scintillating bark of a madrone or redwood. Um, so now I'm just going to go off on my little own tangent here. But meat eating, I see correlated with alcohol drinking, smoking, abusing tobacco, and eating spicy stuff that sort of numbs your senses to the fact that you're eating flesh, like garlic and onion, really hot, spicy food. And so I personally abstain. I follow more or less a Taoist diet, which is, uh, I got this information originally from Master Wong, who taught Oshan everything about tea for the most part. Oshan also followed this diet. And the Taoist diet hones your intuition, hones your palate, so that you get generally a prescient knowledge of the effects of something on you, whether it's food or drink or people or shall I drive my car to work in this direction or that direction which happened to save me from being in an accident today. And so honing and cultivating the intuition. And that's predominantly one of the ways that connect with plants because in honing my own taste and smell, my senses opening my senses through becoming more sensitive, which is a double-edged sword in our society. You know, don't we know it? But we were just talking about that before, how sensitive we can be sometimes in you know, in the public sphere when people are coming up and throwing their energy at us, you know, and not realizing that they just need to calm their spirit and not knowing the practices that can calm their spirit instead of having them, like, uh, pass on by a contagion their unrest. You know, it's like the hungry ghosts in Tibetan Buddhism. And we all have that. I don't essentialize any human being. But we are ecologies ourselves. We have bacteria without which we cannot live all throughout our body. Who is the I? No, we can never say I. We are always we. We. There's no me and my bacteria. There's we. Because it's like my bacteria and my human cells and all this other stuff I've picked up from whatever. And uh, symbiotic relationships is what... I try to cultivate both inside and out. I'm not just talking on an ethereal level. I'm talking about on a materially grounded spiritual level where we're getting past that dualism. So diet would be the second way. The third way is simple. Gardening, whether it's in your home or on your balcony, or getting a little plot of land in community garden, or guerrilla gardening, but that dedication to a plant. You know, I'm growing an avocado tree in Vienna, in my home. I don't think it will ever fruit. 
it's the wrong conditions, but it's beautiful, and I, I dote on it, and it repays me by its beauty. Um, the artist Hunda Tabasa, who's a beautiful Austrian artist, he talks about tree tenants. If you have a tree that's growing on the top of your building or on a terrace, the tree tenant, you know, pays its rent in oxygen and beauty and shade and cooling the temperature of your house. And he talks about the tree tenant as, you know, a um, community that we need to serve in our cities, just like we need to serve this underserved community or that underserved community as a matter of justice. Mm. So gardening would be the third. Yeah, that was epic. Thank you. Do you know, I mean, obviously there's no beginning or end to anything because it's all continuous, but is there a point in your life you can recognize is when you became really interested in plants and this information? Well, I guess, like, I remember in fifth grade, the environmental crisis, like, hit me as something that existed. I was probably 10 years old, but it was real for me. And I was like, you know, we were making little storybooks, and mine was about the environment and how it was being destroyed, and still had that probably somewhere, but that really affected me. And then, you know, I went to high school and girls and trying to, like, survive, like, you know, and the gangsta's paradise of our, you know, education system. And I forgot about all that. And I went to college and I moved into this amazing cooperative at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, called Lothlorien, where they have a tree house and a redwood tree, three floors up, that rests on the branches and doesn't hurt it at all. I remember climbing up to the top and we would have these amazing parties called Food Orgy, which the name says it all. But it was a vegetarian, all-organic cooperative. We grew a lot of plants, and I learned first about plant dieting. And I've been plant dieting on and off my whole, yeah, probably last, like, 13 years or something on white sage. It's one of my master plants. Just taking a teeny bit each day, eating. You know, I grew it for years when I lived in San Francisco. And to have that little bit of plant every day and to grow it, you really learn about that plant and, you know, burning it and, like, whatever it is, you just, like, like rubbing it in your hands and sleeping with it. And, you know, Jimi Hendrix slept with his guitar. And we all know what an amazing, transcendental guitarist he was. There was, you know, there was no guitar without Jimi and Jimi without the guitar. Those two were were wedded. And so I would say that that was a pretty beautiful experience. And from there, everything just sort of blossomed. Um, and concurrent with that, I did a study abroad in Chile, which sort of brought the whole environmentalism thing back. I mean, living in Berkeley will do it on its own. But in Chile, I took a course on environmental politics. And I'd never done that before. And I learned about deep ecology and what was going on in Chile with uh, mining and the salmon industry and the timber industry and then this guy named Douglas Tompkins who bought up the, you know, a lot of this province of, I think it's Palena and he had basically just kept it as a reserve he like bought you know 600,000 hectares and turned it over to the government as a forever national sanctuary protected area. And doing some research on him, I went to 2002 UN World Summit on Sustainable Development in Johannesburg, Africa, as a delegate from UC Berkeley, and wrote for Adbusters at that time, and hung out with some uh, amazing professors from Berkeley, and met this guy from Venezuela who gave me a whole log of Palo Santo before I knew what Palo Santo was and turned me on to uh, Matsuro Yimoto, the messages from water, before I knew anything about that. And I was just like being turned on by all this stuff. And I went back. And, yeah, since then it's been like this thing that's been caressing me 
into serving, serving it ever since. Then I had a beautiful experience in Brazil in 2004. When I was in Brazil, a friend had told me about like a plant medicine down there. And I didn't even know anything about it. I was like, I what? And lo and behold, after hanging out with João de Deus for a little bit in Abigiania, um, we met, you know, the shaman. She was like, oh yeah, by the way, if you want to come. Was last minute, I gave her a phone call. And I had an experience of being in my avatar body in the Amazon. And it was like, definitely changed my life forever. What do you mean when you say your avatar body? Being connected with everything. Being connected with all of nature. With, uh, with realizing, I mean, here's, here's my basic thing, right? I'll just like lay it out. According to physicists, there's 13 dimensions, right? Okay. According to every other thought discipline in the Western world, we only research and rely on four. My question is, what happened to those other nine? Do they have absolutely no effect or bearing? On the other four, I, I mean, I think that we know, certainly with the four dimensions that we typically navigate in. Which are what? Um, which are length, breadth, height, and time. So three dimensions of space and one of time. If you alter one of the three dimensions of space or the dimension of time, everything else alters too. It's all connected. Right? Like if I um, made this table shorter, it's going to have an effect on the whole properties of the table because, you know, we, we view it as a unity. Um, and we're always playing with this idea of unity, disunity, continuity, discontinuity as dualisms in our um, mind. And our mind itself is dualistic. We have our left hemisphere. It's like a computer and can only see details and recognize patterns that it already knows. We have the right side of the mind that is available for newness, what Hannah Arendt called natality. The fact that no matter how closed down things may seem, no matter how totalitarian, how structurally closed, there's always a possibility for newness. That there's always going to be a tendril of a plant that's going to grow from the cracks of the concrete. And that life, mentality, cannot be stopped by any force on this planet. That there's something higher, deeper going on. And so, if we've got 13 dimensions, but we're only acting as if there's four, then my question is like, how can we be open to the fact that our representation of reality is always going to be partial at best, that there's going to be other factors that are playing a role that we that are beyond our ken, at least uh, our normal state of understanding. Synesthesia is, is one example of that, where you smell sounds or you, um, you hear tastes, or you know, you're able to see music you know, as it's being played, you're seeing geometric forms. And there's, I don't know what percentage of the population, maybe 0.1% or 0.1%, uh, but yeah, I mean 0.01%, <laughs> but a very small portion of the population has these psychedelic synesthetic experiences going through life already. I mean, one possible explanation is that corpus callosum, the band going between the left and the right hemispheres, might be bigger, and thus there's more traffic of information. Einstein, coincidentally, the guy who didn't speak until he was three years old, um, he has a, a, had an abnormally large corpus callosum, this connecting um, uh, fiber between the left and the right hemispheres. It's a fantastic book uh, Ian McGilchrist wrote called The Master and His Emissary. 
basically saying, you know, the left hemisphere, the controlling computer, is a you know, wonderful servant but a terrible master because it can only understand what it already knows. You know, if it encounters anything new, instead of transforming and being able to integrate that newness and evolve, it's instead does not compute. And so that's why the right hemisphere, the romantic, the mystic, the creative side, allows us to evolve. And evolve also the left hemisphere so that when we are doing that detailed analysis and that focused um, uh, close work, that we're able to integrate the new patterns that we're seeing and allow the pattern language of nature to open us up and release us from previous conditioning and programming. That's cool. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious about your origins, like where are you from, where are you born, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in San Diego, Solana Beach, California. I'm a Californian, four generations back on both sides. I'm very proud of that when I'm abroad. People say, ah, du bist Amerikaner. And I say, nein, ich bin Kalifornian. I'm from California, man. That's where I'm from. And I can, with much heart and love, represent this beloved state of mine that's been way too dry um, and has sort of lost its head a little bit by overfishing, allowing offshore oil drilling to continue and allowing the fracking of our pristine, gorgeous state, which to me, California is utopia. You know, as soon as we get like rail going on, are able to phase out cars and get, you know, trams and monorails and just like bikes and breathe fresh, fresh air, rehabilitate and regenerate our soils and give our waters like the opportunity to be bountiful again. That's so beautiful. And it'll support more life too. You know, I'll be able to support a lot more life with a permacultured uh, reality than one that's uh, you know asphalted over. So um, yeah, and then I grew up and was in the Bay for about ten years. Berkeley brought me there. I'm really grateful. I didn't end up going to Harvard you know, where I thought I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. But I would become such an asshole, man. I'm really glad that, you know, that I instead got to go to Berkeley where I really learned some deep humility and solidarity, really important virtues for being a human being in our current zeitgeist. Went down, oh yeah, I was like in Brazil for a while, Chile, Spain, and got a master's at the London School of Economics. Spent a year in London, which was really intense. Um, and then, yeah, loved the Bay. Worked at UCSF for a couple years, like fighting a good fight against the tobacco industry. I'm probably the world's expert on the tobacco industry and hipsters. <laughs> I've published a well-cited article on how uh, R.J. Reynolds, like Camel Cigarettes, but they also are the people responsible for uh, American Spirit Tobacco, which does have additives, and they just got slapped with a huge lawsuit. You know, it's like spies and lies all over again. But yeah, and then I went down to UCLA for a few years and got to work with Donna Haraway, the amazing post-humanist biologist, philosopher, who taught in the History of Consciousness program at UC Santa Cruz. Um, and then I went to Berlin, and once I found Berlin, I found my, uh, my Dr. Vater, as they say, the father of your dissertation, and I decided that it would be best if I moved to Germany and worked with him on my dissertation, which was entitled Interspecies 
discourse ethics, our obligations and opportunities in our communicative and political relationship with nature. Um, yeah, and as of April, I'm in Vienna on a postdoc. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. Uh, you can say that. We, uh, that was a lot of information. Uh, specifically, I would like to go back to, you talked about San Diego and growing up fourth generational Californian, you know, like, what were your parents like? Um, what was it like in Solana Beach? Yeah, I mean, Solana Beach, it's named Solana Beach for a reason, because it has some Latino influence, Solana, Sunny, and, so, you know, it's been... I guess colonized by, by white people for a while. Hence the beach. We have some beautiful beaches. Like I had friends who were uh, surfing, you know, by the time we were in junior high, like sponsored surfers. Uh, Zach Plopper, I think, was one of the homies down there. Lots of skateboarding and surfing scene. It was just like everything's so relaxed. Like if you've never been to San Diego, you don't know. It's like mm, everything's like running at a slower pace. People aren't in a rush in the same way. I think that had a really positive effect on me because I'm a slow thinker. Like, it takes me a while to grok something, to integrate it, and to have that realization. But once I do, then I feel like it's, it's there. What were your parents like? Um, well, my dad was a lawyer for the state of California, like basically mm, taking the licenses away from bad doctors, like who you know, would have sex with their patients, if you're a psychiatrist or something like that. My mom was a school teacher and counselor at an alternative high school, so I would say probably in her lifetime she's probably saved like a hundred lives, either from homicide, suicide, or all sorts of stuff, like drugs. And, yeah, my parents were hippies, you know, when I was born, hence the name Yogi. I received that name from <clears throat> their guru at the time, who was this guy named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, who later became known as Osho, uh, after they departed from being sannyasins and yeah, I, you know, it was a big thing, being named Yogi from a young age. I wanted to change my name to Jose, actually, for several years. You know, I grew up in San Diego, so... And, uh, but um, we would go to the Canadian Rockies every summer in Canada, like these beautiful mountains and some, like, gorgeous, pristine places on Earth. And, like, for... Maybe like nine years, our family would take like a three-week vacation, go camping, and just all we would do is be in nature all day, hiking, 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 getting steep back in these valleys. And I learned a lot about, you know, leave no trace, pack it in, pack it out. All these principles way before I'd ever been to Burning Man, you know. And I fell in love with like the love that I was feeling from these these pulsating, throbbing sources of life. So it sounds like they taught you a lot and their way of life had a big influence on how you developed. What was your relationship like with them? Are you close with them still or are they still living? Yeah, they're still living. Um, I just saw both of them within the last few days, actually. And... Yeah, they got divorced when I was about 15, which was good, because it was intense for me. Uh, I was getting in trouble a little bit, like right before that, because I was feeling all the tension at home, and I was becoming a teenager. And I love my dad very deeply, but we also have just, uh, you know, I've always had a wound of not feeling seen by him, like not feeling 100%, like, like he got who I was as a human being and supported that and, you know, would stand up for me in that way. Like even though he totally does and super loving, 
But, you know, because his dad died when he was 11, and his dad was like this Superman, like very strong. He was also a drummer, like me. I have his middle name, Hale. And, uh, yes, you know, it was just, there was a lot of healing in the last, you know, decade that I've been taking a conscious step to try to do that generational healing of figure out, you know, where my anger comes from, from my father, from his father, from all these fathers, all the way back, and what that's all about. You know, anger is generally a secondary emotion. They call it where hurt is the primary one. And yeah, just trying to tap into that hurt and see like why it's expressing itself as anger and how I can better deal with that hurt by expressing my vulnerability and um, loving myself a little bit more in that way. My mom's name is Terry, and I'm sure many of her past students have called her like Mother Teresa because she has been so dedicated to the lives of so many humans on this planet in every way. And I feel sometimes like, you know, she's like one of those aboriginals like blowing their didgeridoo it's because the didgeridoo sound always has to be maintained on this planet so that it keeps on going. And I think you know, a lot of her work has been to maintain this this force for a lot of people who were in despair so they could have hope and restore their faith and find their path and you know get their feet planted on the ground and have somebody who believed in them so that they could go and grow and prosper. So I've you know both my parents I've always really looked up to for their dedication to helping society. I mean my father was the mayor of my city. He was one of the people fighting against Star Wars, you know, Reagan's crazy thing about satellite warship. My dad was dedicating his life, you know, to stop that. And recently, just the last little thing, like there was a nuclear power plant right between San Diego and LA, San Onofre. And it had all sorts of problems. And this was after Fukushima, and it had, like, melted rods, and it was a mess. And they are like, well, we want to make money, so we're just going to keep on going with it, you know. And my father, in coalition with a bunch of other good people, um, really explored every channel to get this thing shut down. And they flew in the ex-president of, I think it was the ex-president of, Japan to talk in San Diego about nuclear power and the threat that it could cause being so close to you know LA and San Diego and potential effects on everything within a week the power company I think it was what Edison Electric they decided to close it down so now California only has one operating nuclear power plant that's Diablo but that was a huge win, because that thing was right on the ocean, could have had another Fukushima right here in California. And yeah, so I'm super proud of my dad for being involved in that. Right on. Yeah, no, it was just a couple like, years ago. It's great work. Thanks for sharing. Do you have uh, siblings? Yeah, I've got my brother Zach, Zachary Garth. His middle name means of the garden. Party on, Wayne. And uh, younger or older? He's uh, four and a half years younger than me. And how old are you? I'm 34. And he works for Facebook. And as uh, a product manager and complete like whiz kid who, you know, when we were growing up, I was, everything came easy to me, like school. And, you know, like it was funny. Like, it, I was just doing my thing, and I'm sure that it was like a, a little bit daunting to have an older brother who had gotten really good SAT scores, like super good grades, and, and I was vice president of my high school, won Battle of the Bands, and was in the theater, acting, and just really involved, but it wasn't, 
for any reason other than that liked it. And so, you know, he had a harder time when he was younger with a lot of stuff, um, just like developmentally. And then he got to high school and he was like, all right, I'm going to step up to the plate. And he, uh, yeah, he like outdid me in every, he was like president of the high school. He like, he was doing great. And he ended up going to Berkeley too, which was really good for him. You know, gave him a little bit of, a little bit of green ecological mind, um, even though he just you know, recently graduated from MIT, was it, uh, yeah, Sloan School of Business, worked for four years in Asia as an investment banking consultant, was really gone in the statistics, economics, like engineering, like, you know, guy's really smart, and I can't wait until he applies all of his amazing skill and knowledge to really um, dedicating it to environmental and social justice, and ecological justice, because I know the moment that he realizes how important that is for this planet, his involvement, that he'll be able to, you know, beef up any organization in a really good way. So I pray for that every day. <laughs> so is that that's something you feel like he's moving towards or something you're just interested in, so you think maybe you would be well-suited to do that type of work also. Well, I, you know, he's my little brother, and we're very different, and I know he's got a really good heart and a really good mind, and I know how attractive it is to live, you know, the, uh, how should I say, like, you know, the Silicon Valley, San Francisco gentrification life, where, like, you know, you can go out and eat fancy food, drink fancy cocktails every night, and just like sort of live a, a you know, a scenester sort of life where it's like basically um, largely hedonistic outside of the working hours. Because, you know, the work's tough or, you know, I get it. But I don't know, I think everybody who tries that path of, you know, like uh, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, you know, you have your kanalas and you have your, just the sensual world. And, you know, like if you're still doing that after a certain age, like, I can't help but feel that it's not going to be what you're looking for. You know, it's like the middle life crisis sort of thing. You buy the fancy car and you get the young girlfriend and you're still feeling empty. So, yeah, just, you know, connection with his middle name is what I'm praying for and you know he's doing good work wherever he is but like really directing it like crystal clear towards um, you know position that would only feed his uh, um, need for financial stability and recognition and status but also like purpose and um, being you know one of the infinite amount of leaders in our time so when we look back it's like okay you know the history books can help show us like what were you doing you know in 2015 2020 2025 when all this shit was going down on this planet right politically economically socially environmentally yeah I hear you. And on your own path, where you are right now in your life, you mentioned a few kind of like barometers of kind of like holistic success, like financial and like social recognition, but also like purpose. And um, which places in your own life do you feel like fulfilled in your own par with where you would like to be? And what are some of the areas that you feel like you're working on? Yeah, that's a big question. You know, I feel almost eternally that I am not quite there yet, right? It's, it's almost like a, um, an illness of um, a lot of people I know that, but especially like my experience of never feeling like that I'm there, like I've never arrived. I can't pat myself on the back yet. You know, I just got my PhD recently, 
It was a big thing, you know, in my life. Congratulations. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet still, I don't feel that I'm really yet living my, my purpose to the degree that I know I can. And by that, I just mean serving. Um, because the academic thing's great, and that is a big part of who I am. And the music thing's great. It's a big part of who I am. And movement, you know, I teach acro yoga too, and I think being embodied is a huge part of waking up and something that when I fly somebody or teach a class and I see people working out, you know, their samskaras like on a real time level, then I can feel like, ah, I did some good today. Or if you're writing an article, it might be two years till it gets published. You know, that that opens a whole other discussion about, um, you know, what being an academic is and how that interfaces with politics and the present and reality. And I know, I know this, like, that it's a really important role to be feeding certain types of knowledge into the system, but the uptake of that knowledge into the wider non-specialist um, world is a question that, you know, I think most academics take very seriously as one that is of eternal recurrence. Am I making an impact? Am I making any difference? I spent, you know, 10 years writing this book or and I wrote this dissertation or published this article and maybe... 500 people in the world can really understand what I actually said. I'm writing in a different language called academies, which is necessary, maybe, for for certain things. But I'm very interested, say, you know, for the first time in my life, I've been interested from a personal level in a presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders. No. Obama was great, but from the beginning, he was just so polished. And I was like, oh man, this guy is such a smooth talker. Like, how is this going to materialize into fruition? With Bernie Sanders, you know, I want to, I'm going to write him an email the next couple days and be like, Senator Sanders, I'm here at your service. I'm an environmental philosopher. can help you with messaging. can help you with other stuff, political rhetoric. I'm trained in political theory. Please let me be of service to you pro bono in whatever way possible. And, you know, outlining some ways in which I can help. And I'll see what the response is. Because that sort of thing would make me feel like I'm actually living my purpose. Because I'd be engaging um, not just with the theories and the ideas, which are extremely important, you know, so that we get clear on what we're talking about. So we're not just spinning our wheels, which I think a lot of the political process is, you know, most of the assumptions of politics are so far off the mark of reality and are so reactionary. You know, they're just assumptions of assumptions of assumptions, or as uh, Trent Reznor says in one of his songs, I'm just a copy of a copy of a copy. It's, you know, where's, where's the, the mana that all of these, these questions and these interests and these movements come from? Like getting back to that getting back to real basic stuff, you know, if we're going to talk about immigration, say, talking about what's our tradition and what does that mean to us and why do we feel threatened and when do we feel threatened and whether our fears have anything to do with immigration at all or if they have to do with other things that are much, much larger that are endemic to um, the way that our political system's been currently set up and uh, deployed. So, um, how long have you been preparing? How long was your PhD program? Oh, man. Well, I got my master's in 2005. I took three years off. I was a high school teacher in East Oakland for a year, which was an amazing experience and very hard. I was teaching Spanish, uh, to a largely 95% like African-American population. And because of history, 
there was this feeling that they didn't want to learn Spanish because they felt that why was this minority being treated better than them, even though that they perceived them to be a newer minority on the public radar. And I don't know if it had to do with like skin color or, but it was interesting because I've seen a racism of sorts that wasn't theirs. You know, they picked it up from their environment against Spanish speakers, and so they didn't want to learn Spanish because they saw it as de classe. Mm-hmm. So it was a really interesting experience. You know, teaching a class, fifty kids. You know, you know, trying to teach them Spanish, and I got to play some songs by by Violeta Parra. A famous Chilean singer, one of her songs called Gracias por la Vida, that we had like, you know, fill in the blanks, we would listen. And, you know, I had some really smart students. And it was, I saw one of them later at UCLA when I officially started my PhD in 2008. And right as I was leaving in 2012, um, one of my students from East Oakland, he was a freshman at UCLA so gratifying to see that he made it, you know, to a good university and he had his head straight on his shoulders. That was really nice. But I guess you could say I started in 2008 and ended in 2015. So, yeah, it took me a minute, but that's sort of par for the course in uh, humanities and social sciences. Mm-hmm. Non-secular question, just wondering, are you a Gemini? <laughs> no, I'm an Aquarius. Aquarius. That, honestly, that was my first my first intuition of Aquarius when I went to Gemini, but it's an air sign, yeah. Um, you definitely feel, I feel a lot of air, and then maybe one of your, maybe your moon sign is a earth sign? My moon sign is Libra. Okay. I think that's water, yeah? I'm not quite sure. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think it's water because it's Leo is fire, Virgo is earth, Libra is water, and Scorpio is air. Yeah, I think so too. No, Scorpio is water. Yeah. Yeah, then Libra might be air as well. I think Libra's air, so it's dub- your double air. Yeah. yeah. You got some water in there, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Do you ascribe much to Western astrology? <laughs> well, I mean, I think anything that aids you on your quest for self-introspection is beautiful. Um, and I love Rob Bresney's work. I'll just, you know, state that there. Mm. However, like from what I've heard, the I guess it's called the procession of equinoxes. Like our signs might track onto when they were originally made. They're about six weeks off. Like what we call Aquarius or Capricorn or whatever. It's, I believe from what I've read, about six weeks off from what they actually are at this point in time because the system was founded when things were a certain way. But anyhow, um, there's also Vedic astrology. Uh, there's tarot cards. There's, uh, you know, um, and any sort of scribe work. Like I, I feel that a lot of this is room for our subconscious to manifest and become clear. And so any sort of, mm, uh, I guess, tools that we have to do that is. Um, is a blessing as long as we don't reify it. That is, we take something that's an abstraction and we act as if that's like the essence of reality and we make a lot of our big decisions off of that. I think whatever's informing you and then allowing you to self-reflect and go into that process is a beautiful thing. But I don't necessarily ascribe to any particular, I mean, even though I would say that I'm very interested in Taoist practices, Buddhist practices, and uh, many other um, uh, practices of world religions. And I've got deep respect for a lot of spiritualities that I try not to take myself too seriously. Because in the end, it's like, maybe this. Maybe, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, 
I mean, I do find in my life that I have certain resonances with certain signs, you know, like I date a lot of Libras mm -hmm. or I am interacting with a lot of Aquarius. Um, and I mean, I, that was my first intuition that you were an air sign and I guess another air sign, but like I can feel that you're an air sign, right? It's like, so I think there is something to it. Absolutely. Um, Patterns. That's like for me, nature, reality, from the micro to the macro, fractals. It's all patterns. And the more we're able to relax our eyes and relax our mind and relax our ears and be able to um, oscillate in and out of different frequencies, the more we can see interference patterns coming and going and coming again. This breathing of reality and our concepts and our idea of self. And then we see that all of these things that we call essences, table, water, human, are momentary interference patterns that create a certain three-dimensional hologram that we take to be solid. So enjoying, enjoying the flux. Enjoy the flex, Dijon. I, I'm enjoying it, for sure. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. So, it sounded like to me your interest in Bernie Sanders was the fact that you could bring your information and knowledge and the things that you've learned into like a grounded sphere. And that was your way of feeling like you could do that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I certainly think there's value in, in that and him having you as a helper. And there's also value in your PhD program and like writing a paper that will get published. But to me, what I see is like, you have to wait on someone else to kind of um, reply to your request before you can do something, right? So if you want to help Bernie Sanders out, you said you're going to write him an email and then his team will get back to you, and then you'll be able to help him, you know, formulate some rhetoric. Or with this PhD program, you write a paper, and I don't know who would kind of read it and review it, like your, your professor or whatever. Um, do you feel like there are any direct ways where you can kind of bypass that thing and go straight to, I mean, because you have lots of information to share, like to ground it yourself? Yeah, sure. And that's part of my process of coming out of my cage, coming out of my shell, and realizing um, the work that I need to do, which is scary. Uh, you know, writing more mainstream articles and uh, doing things like this, for example, taking people up on their offers, which I'm starting to do in Vienna too. You know, now that I have a PhD, I feel a little bit more vetted. Mm -hmm. Or I've completed that program. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, now, now I'm going to um, sort of go back on something I said. Human design, right? You know human design? That whole world. Well, something that I've gotten help with is According to that philosophy or that cosmology or spirituality or esoteric science, whatever, um, I'm a, um, uh, what is it, a projector. So, one of the teachings I got from that is that I wait for invitations, and when they come, then I can lay my bounty on the table and offer it up and magnify whatever force is being generated by a project. And I really magnify and multiply the leverage. But when I try to initiate things on my own, I don't have the oomph to follow through with it by myself because I get discouraged or run out of money, whatever it is. And so that's, you know, some thing that resonated with my own experience. Mm -hmm. And so, laying, leaning back a little bit, playing cool until I'm invited, has been a deep teaching for me 
so that I am not anxious about why am I trying so hard to make make this thing happen right and it's not happening yeah that makes sense to me completely um I think in the formation of a a team or a band there are lots of you know elements that make up the whole and in our society we usually value specific ones over others even though they're not necessarily more important you know like like in a band the front man gets all the credit right or like um on a basketball team, like Michael Jordan is the guy, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a team. And I was listening to this audio book, which I, th- I feel like you probably would be really interested in, called uh, The Music Lesson by Victor Wooten. Oh, I love Victor Wooten. Yeah, it's really amazing. Um, it's a book also, but the audio book seems to me like the only way it makes sense to consume that information because he's speaking it and it's a conversational piece between him and these different people that are teaching him music. Mm-hmm. So it's like him speaking and the guy speaking back and sometimes they play music together. And it's like, like how would you, you hear the music? Yeah, how would yeah. you do that? You can't do that in a book, right? Um, but he was just talking about how, you know, how the bassist was the most important person in the band because um, they just like set the tone and like, it's all they, they're in charge of the feel mm-hmm. you know of the, the song and people feel music before they hear it you yeah. know um, but it's like a humble position because usually if a if a bass player is doing his his job then like he's relatively unnoticed he yeah. just makes everyone else sound good mm-hmm. um, so it definitely resonates with me that there's there's multiple roles for people and their gifts to form a cohesive and I feel like it's good knowledge of self to recognize like what feels good to you as far as like how you're integrating yourself into that yeah it's I mean it's a process it's continual for me uh, every time I join a new organization or overcommit myself to something or yes how can I what can I contribute um, without stepping on toes and also well just giving my gifts as fully as possible mm-hmm. not holding back yeah. while being a cohesive unit of greater whole because right. we're all interdependent and I truly believe that you know as one of my good friends Dylan says the time of the lone wolf is over right. it's been prophesied we need to organize ourselves to make things happen so to get back to your question just a little bit one of the things that I'm calling into my life um, is stability, geographic stability, living in a community, a physical community, uh, not an online one, uh, for a pe- long enough period of time where I can get to know folks, interact with them, learn to trust them, and earn their trust so that we can really start building something from the ground up without a false floor. That is something where something happens that disturbs the structure yet we're resilient enough because of our long-term interactions to pick ourselves back up dust ourselves off and be even stronger and it's that sort of community organizing that is going to make a difference in our world all around this globe you know, in Cochabamba, Bolivia, protesting against the privatization of water. In, uh, in Greece, you know, protesting against austerity. Um, I think all of these community, localized, regional-based initiatives, uh, which give so much force uh, for people working for social and environmental justice, like Fondana Shiva, for example. Um, these people and these movements that have been built up over a long period of time a specific place on this planet, those are the nodes that we then connect. We then can organize and connect the power of these physical brick-and-mortar uh, communities. And then in uniting and connecting these physical 
dedicated, planted communities. Then, you know, we have civil society and we can make a better world that isn't reliant upon fear, scarcity, and um, inequality. That's beautiful. I definitely agree with everything that you're saying and what your vision is. So I'm sure you will co-create that with the right community. Uh, I uh, am very grateful for you to come on and share your perspective with us today. I know you have a plane to catch, so I want to start wrapping up. Um, I have a couple of rapid-fire questions for you as we end, mm-hmm. and then we can, we can go. So one is, what is one of your favorite things about yourself? Um, I love that when I'm in the right juicy mix of community, how playful I can be and how I can just allow people to open up by being honest with my own, um, my own erotic ecology. And by that, I don't mean anything having to do with sex. I mean, enjoying the physical sensation of being alive and taking a breath and feeling my feet on the earth and feeling the crisp, cold air on a starry night. And by inhaling and breathing that into my cells, I can undulate that feeling to those around me. Right on. And last question is, um, what is the number one thing that you want to bring into your life in 2016? Oh, man. The number one thing. Um, This would be the scaffolding to start a family, which means uh, you know, a tenure track professor, assistant professor position somewhere, you know, stable geographic location, uh, a partner who I feel dedication towards and who I feel that we're growing together and evolving that commitment. And my own emotional um, growth, where I feel that um, you know, if I were to become a father, that I would be able to be so s- centered and still in my being that I can hold space for whatever comes. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.